With four children schooling from home this past spring, people would often ask me how things are going at our house. I'd smile and reply, it's one part little house on the prairie, one part Lord of the Flies. When I say little house on the prairie, I usually need to elaborate. Laura Ingalls Wilder's books profile a family who lived together on an isolated homestead through hard scrabble times with a sense of love and hope in their core. I share how in our own house, although it was just feet away from our neighbors, it became a kind of an outpost with our kids as each other's only playmates. And somehow over the months, they developed the kind of sibling relationship I once imagined belonged only to a bygone era. They relied on each other. They sought each other out. They helped each other. And then something else happened that I never could have imagined before. They got bored with their screens. My previously helicoptered kids voluntarily went outside. They climbed trees, skinned knees, and rode together all around the neighborhood with confidence while I looked on with pastoral pride. So that's the little house on the prairie part. Lord of the Flies needs no explanation. Everyone knows what I mean. You don't even have to have read William Golding's classic novel to know that he vividly captures the dark undertone of a human soul, detailing what reviews describe as a descent into savagery. The book centers around a group of teens who are marooned on an uninhabited island. Although polite and well-mannered at the start, they quickly unravel in the face of isolation tearing each other apart. If there's anything that parenting through the pandemic has taught me, Golding was right about the darkness that lurks just under the surface of our civility. And Golding was deeply wrong. I can suspect that most of us can affirm the ways in which he was right. The raw emotions of fear and frustration many of us have experienced this year have us walking around today with a bit sharper edges, a bit shorter fuse. There's a pervasive sense of destabilization and inescapable loss. Some of us are grieving loved ones. Others work. Others, a faraway loved one's touch, a simple hug from a friend. Nearly all of us are grieving a world of just seven months ago, a world we want back and don't have back. This plays out in even more polarized politics, in the horror of watching our country literally and figuratively on fire, in the breakdown of relationships as we disagree on how best to keep each other safe in existential anxiety that there's not enough, that same almost cellular fear of privation that led us to hoard toilet paper and grab the last bottle of Purell. Coronavirus, in many ways, has affirmed Golding's account that at the core of our world and of our souls is intractable 
brokenness. But it has also proved the exact counterpoint. In unaccustomed insecurity, many have discovered a deeper empathy for those who are suffering, for the intolerable epidemic of homelessness and food insecurity in our nation that did not begin but has greatly increased with the pandemic. In the enforced pause, we somehow collectively began to listen a little closer, instigating a deep soul-searching on racial justice, finding a willingness to stand with those in the Black community who have been telling us for so long of their suffering and whose pain the pandemic somehow gave us the space to see. In the shared trauma of uncertainty, even if we still have jobs, we may have found it easier to put ourselves in the shoes of those who suddenly do not. We realize that there are no bootstraps big enough to pull ourselves out alone. And so we must work together for a better plan. Golding was right, but Golding was wrong. Because if our high holiday season teaches us anything, it is that we are never only one thing. At the same time that we beat our chests in repentance for the darkness we have allowed to get into the driver's seat of our souls, we ask God to heed our core potential to embody our best selves. That's a capacity that the cynic in us contends with because the flaws and failures of our world, of our community and our country are so clear. The goodness, less so. Rabbi Tova August shared a story from the 1930s that feels oddly current. It was one of the coldest days of the year, she wrote, when the world was in the grip of the Great Depression. The poor were close to starvation. A judge was hearing a complaint against a woman charged with stealing a loaf of bread. She pleaded that her daughter was sick and her grandchildren were starving, but the shopkeeper, whose loaf had been stolen, refused to drop the charge. He insisted that an example be made of the woman, a deterrent to others. The judge sighed. He was reluctant to pass judgment, but he had no alternative. I'm sorry, he said to her. I can't make any exceptions. The law is the law. I sentence you to a fine, and if you can't pay it, I must send you to jail. The woman was heartbroken. But even as he was passing the sentence, the judge was reaching into his pocket for the money to pay the fine. He took off his hat, tossed a bill into it, and then he addressed the crowd in the courtroom. I'm also going to impose a fine of 50 cents, he said, on every person here for living in a town where a person has to steal bread to save her grandchildren from starvation. Mr. Bailiff, he said, please collect the fines in this hat and then pass them to the defendant. And so it was that the accused went home with $47 and 50 cents, enough at that time. 50 cents of which had been paid by
by the shame-faced grocery store shopkeeper who had brought the charge. It's been a long time since 1930, and so much has changed. But so much of this story still rings true. We still too often ignore the suffering of those who live in our town, in our state, in our country, in our world. We still have the steel in our soul that keeps our fists tightly wound around what is good for us only. But we also still have the grace. Here we are on Rosh Hashanah, and each of us carries with us our fear our failures, our flaws, and our potential. Today, we can look at our world and at ourselves and see Lord of the Flies. God knows there's much to support that view. Or we can see just beneath the pain a core kindness that can still shine through. That is what one man historian Rutger Bregman chose to do. He had grown up with the golding idea that we as humans are inherently selfish beings. He reflects, golding had a masterful ability to portray the darkest depths of mankind. In hindsight, the secret to the book's success is clear. Golding had the zeitgeist of the 1960s on his side when a whole new generation was questioning their parents about the atrocities of the Second World War. Had Auschwitz been an anomaly, they wanted to know? Or is there a Nazi hiding in each of us? I began to wonder, Bregman continued, had anyone ever studied what real children would do if they found themselves alone on a deserted island? One day, he found his answer. It turns out, true story, that in 1965, as he writes, Six boys set out from Tonga on a fishing trip. Caught in a huge storm, the boys were shipwrecked on a deserted island. What did they do, this little tribe? They made a pact never to quarrel. Bregman discovered that shipwrecked together for 15 months, the real boys didn't turn on each other, the opposite. They formed a society of support that sustained each other. The ship captain who found and rescued them wrote this in his log. The island is considered uninhabitable, but by the time we arrived, the boys had set up a small commune with food and hollowed out tree trunks to store rainwater, a gymnasium, a badminton court, chicken pens, and a permanent fire, all from handiwork, an old knife blade, and much determination. Of course, there were arguments, but when the teenage boys got frustrated with each other, they took a walk to cool down. The group insisted that any argument end after four hours with an apology. They began each day with songs and prayers. When one boy broke his leg, they worked together to splint it, and one of the boys even said, don't worry, we'll do your work for you while you lay here like the king himself. And that's what they did until the break fully healed. What's more, when they returned home, the captain who had rescued them had an audience with that very king. He asked for a boat 
to start a fishing business, and all the boys signed on together as crew, remaining lifelong friends. It's a remarkable story, all the more so because of the contrast with Golding's vision. While the boys in Lord of the Flies come to blows over fire, Bregman concluded, those in this real-life version tended their flame so it never went out. An amazing story, a true story. But do you know, at the time the boys were rescued back in 1966, all the way until Bregman dug their story out of a dusty collection of old news, it barely made a ripple. It turns out that the story of our world as cold and cruel and capricious lands, the story of basic human decency, of kindness and compassion, not so much. What do we do with that? Bregman spends the rest of his 400-page book, Humankind, arguing that the core survival skill that every single one of us needs today is cultivating a sense of our world and those we share it with as capable of kindness. It's an approach Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who passed away yesterday, took. The first Jewish woman to serve on the Supreme Court, she is famous not only for her dissent, but for her warm friendship with conservative Justice Antonin Scalia. She said of her colleagues on the court, despite our strong disagreements on cardinal issues, we genuinely respect each other and even enjoy one another's company. Collegiality is crucial to the success of our mission. What could change for us if we could be convinced that we too are capable of collegiality, capable of pulling together when it would be so much easier to break apart, capable of connecting with the plight of others even when it is different from our own, capable of overcoming anger with forgiveness, capable of responding to the most broken pieces of our world, conquering our inner cynic, is critical work, Bregman teaches, because risking a willingness to see in others and in ourselves a capacity for kindness is an act of spiritual courage that is contagious. How we choose to see can change our world. If there's one task this season asks of us, it is that to shift our perspective of what is possible. Hayom harat olam. Today, the world is created anew. Will our lives, will our world be Golding or Bregman? The truth is what it has always been. The answer is up to you. Shana Tova.